Let's have a word of prayer here. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart might be pleasing to you and a help to these people. Who knows what import these 25 minutes could have for somebody's whole focus in life if your Holy Spirit takes these human words and makes them your own. I pray that that happen. In Jesus' name, amen. I think I inherited from my mother a, uh, a great love for the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. They were well marked on those India pages in her Schofield reference Bible. And I think that they probably loomed large in her mind and her experience because I was her only son and there's no other book in the Bible that speaks of sons and mothers like Proverbs does. For example, Proverbs 1, verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction and reject not your mother's teaching. Proverbs 10, 1. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Proverbs 23:22 Hearken to your father who begot you and do not despise your mother when she is old. Verse 25 Let your father and mother be glad let her who bore you rejoice. Proverbs 29:15 The rod of reproof gives wisdom but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. My father was away most of the time when I was growing up, and so mother had the, the tremendous burden of rearing me and my sister alone, basically, functioning as father and mother at once. And so I think she probably schooled herself on this most practical of biblical books relating many times to sons and fathers and sons and mothers. So when I spoke at her funeral, I read the words from chapter 31, which you're all familiar with. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, which is what I wanted to do then and want to do now. Proverbs 31, 26 following. So I've got a special place in my heart for the Proverbs, and I suppose I read them with a bit more intensity just because somebody I love very much loved them very much. And perhaps you'll see me coming back to them again and again on special occasions, and the special occasion today is the celebration of education here and the 200th birthday of the Sunday school. And the proverb that I want us all to focus on and really unpack for all it's worth is Proverbs 20, verse 15. There is gold and abundance of costly stones, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. 
If you took the words, the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel, by themselves, you might conclude that the uh, writer thinks that the reason the lips of knowledge are so valuable is because they help you get rich. And uh, that wouldn't be wrong in terms of normal human experience, would it? We know from Proverbs 24, 3 through 6, that that is true. Listen to what the writer says. By wisdom, a house is built, and by understanding, it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is mightier than a strong man, and a man of knowledge than he who has strength. For by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. In other words, brains are better than brawn when it comes to winning wars and getting rich. That's true, right? The wise man says so. The Proverbs are not just admonitions for how to act, they are also descriptions of life as it is. And just because the writer says, if you're smart, you can get rich, doesn't mean he thinks we should devote our smarts to getting rich. That's a fact of life, but it may not be a mandate. There may be other reasons from chapter 20, verse 15, why the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. In fact, I want to argue that Proverbs 20:15 can't mean that in its context. I'll try to show you why. There is gold and abundance of costly stones, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. If the wise man had wanted to say that the lips of knowledge are valuable because they help you get costly stones and they help you get gold, he wouldn't have contrasted the two. He would have said one is a means to the other. But he contrasts the two, and in contrasting much gold and costly stones, but here's a real jewel, he shows that the value of the lips of knowledge surpasses the value of gold and gems. So, I think Proverbs 20.15 fits into another category of teaching in the Proverbs that we can find in places like this. Proverbs 3, verses 13 to 18 say... Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gets understanding for the gain from it is better than the gain from silver. There it's clear that you're not devoting wisdom and understanding to gain more silver and gold because whatever gain there is that comes from knowledge is something better than silver and gold. And its profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. So, the lips of knowledge are valuable not just because they help multiply riches. In fact, that may be a snare. There is gain, but it is better than gold or silver. Now, let me put a parenthesis in here because I just used a text in which the word wisdom is used and some of you probably have in your mind a very clear distinction between wisdom and knowledge. And I want to make a comment on that, lest there be a misunderstanding. We say knowledge is awareness of facts, right? 
Wisdom is the savvy to know how to put knowledge to good and helpful use. That's a very typical distinction we make in English. I do not believe the writer of the book of Proverbs or writers made that distinction. I think the Hebrew da'at and chokmah are used interchangeably often in the book of Proverbs. For example, Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Ha <laughs> That's what it says over in chapter 10. In chapter 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 1, 7. But he goes on. Here's the parallelism. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. They are simply the same in the author's mind. He has many different words. Insight, knowledge, wisdom, instruction, learning. All these words revolve around one basic idea or a, a complex idea and ought not be distinguished so rigorously as we do in our English usage, knowledge, facts, wisdom, how to live. Okay? So that I'm simply going to let text stand as wisdom or knowledge and use the two interchangeably. Now, another example from Proverbs of how knowledge the value of knowledge contrasts with riches is Proverbs 8, 10, and 11. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. That's the same phrase we just saw a moment ago. Therefore, I conclude that Proverbs 20, verse 15, which says, There is gold and abundance of costly stones, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel, means no matter how much gold or gems you can amass, still the lips of knowledge are more valuable. Or to press it one step farther, since we know that in the author's mind, gold and gems stand for the thing that's most valuable, right? If you want to think, what's the most valuable thing? Well, it's gold and diamonds, especially in that culture. Since that's true, I think we can say that the teaching of Proverbs 20:15 is this. The lips of knowledge are more to be desired than all material things. Would you agree that, that that's the teaching of, of Proverbs 20, verse 15? The lips of knowledge are more to be desired than all material things. You cannot imagine any accumulation of anything that is more valuable than the lips of knowledge, if I understand this verse. Now, to feel the impact of that statement, that's what you have to do when you're studying the Bible, you've got to find some way to let a statement like that hit you. Because you're going to say, oh, sure, that's more valuable than everything else. And then just go right on as if everything else were more valuable. So here's the way I find it very helpful to let something like that hit you. Let your desires that you have for some material thing come before your mind's eye and feel the desire right now. I'll give you some examples. I desire a book, The Mystery of Providence by John Flavel, published in 1687. I wish I had that book. I'm going to buy it when I find it. Okay? So I've got a desire. And I hope it's not evil. It could become evil. It got too strong. 
Glenn said on Wednesday night he desires a car. He was having a little struggle with that desire. And you and I just try to think, what other things at this time of year might people be desiring? New pair of skis as the season comes on or some fall fashion you've seen in a, in a magazine to replace that unslit skirt you've got? Uh, what do we do with these? What do we do with these uh, desires now? These dozens of desires that we have. Let them come before yourself, and and ask yourself: Do I desire the lips of knowledge more than those? Is there as much emotional energy engaged in going after the lips of knowledge? as there is in going after your strongest desire for material things. And if not, then you need to change. Okay? And tonight you're going to change, I hope. Because that's why I'm preaching this sermon. I want to change people into the image of the scriptural model of righteous people. And according to scripture, the lips of knowledge are more valuable than anything else materially that you can imagine. They are a rare jewel. Nothing can compare with wisdom, according to Proverbs 8.11 and 3.15. Now, there are at least three ways that I think the lips of knowledge are valuable, and that's what I want to talk about the rest of the time. Three ways that I desire, can desire, the lips of knowledge. I'll sum them up, and then we'll talk about them individually. You can desire the lips of knowledge when somebody else has them and you want to listen to them, right? When there's a wise person, you ought to want to be around that person and listen to those lips of knowledge. There is incalculable benefit that comes from finding a wise teacher and soaking up everything they have to say. Second, The lips of knowledge are valuable when I have them, when you have them, for two reasons. There are really two reasons for why the lips of knowledge are valuable within this second one. One is, it's simply very, very valuable to have knowledge. You've got to have knowledge to have the lips of knowledge. It's valuable to have knowledge yourself for your own private life. We'll talk about why. But it's also valuable to have the lips of knowledge in the sense that there is a great benefit and pleasure in speaking wisdom into situations for the good of other people. So those are the three things. Not, the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel because they're so great to listen to. They're a precious jewel because to have knowledge is valuable. And they're a precious jewel because to speak knowledge is so delightful and valuable for ourselves and others. So let's take them one at a time now and talk about them in more detail. First, the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel to me when I find another person who is wise, knowledgeable, especially in spiritual things, and I ought to go after that person and listen with all my heart. C.S. Lewis has the lips of wisdom, had the lips of wisdom, and still speaks through his books, though he is dead. Uh, And I've read everything theological and almost all the fiction of C.S. Lewis. I haven't read The Dark Tower, which is that uncompleted piece of his. But everything else I think I've read. And there's only one reason I went after him like that. Oh, is he wise. 
He is so wise. He opened my eyes like very few other teachers. If you offered me, I wrote down $10 million and said, I'll give you this $10 million if you would, if you could somehow do this, surrender and give up what you've learned from C.S. Lewis. I wouldn't consider the offer 10 seconds. That's how much I value the life-changing import of knowledge. You can't put a dollar sign on what you learn from wise people. Jonathan Edwards had the lips of wisdom, and he's dead and still speaks through his sermons. And I can remember many Sunday nights. There were no Sunday services in the evening in Germany. And I can remember many Sunday nights sitting in our little one-room flat there on our black rocking chair with this it's one of these first edition crackly old Jonathan Edwards religious affections, opening that book and reading and savoring two or three pages and then just closing it and thinking and savoring and being changed by the wisdom in dissertation concerning the religious affections written in 1743. Jonathan Edwards has meant more to me than many, many people. And if you said to change it from uh, money to a threat. Uh, how about your hands and feet? I'd rather give up my hands and my feet than what I've gotten from Jonathan Edwards. I'd rather have to write with a hook and walk on wooden legs than give up what I've learned from Jonathan Edwards. And I could extend the list, and you know people in your own experience like that too. But now I'll bet somebody might be saying... Um, the only teacher I need is the Holy Spirit. You're exalting human teachers way too highly. The words of men are vain. God's word is a precious jewel. Man's word is a rusty nail. Now, there's, there's some truth in that, but there's a lot of error too, and I want to try to separate the two. The error, I think, is this. People that talk like that have a zeal for God which is not according to knowledge. According to Ephesians chapter 4, when Christ ascended, He gave, among other things, pastor-teachers. He gave teachers to the church. Now, what do you ex think He expected those teachers to do? And of what benefit do you think He expected those teachers to be? I think he expected them to teach and other people to get helped by the teaching, don't you? I think he said, I'm going to give you teachers and I'm going to help them understand, like Ezra, we read about this morning, give the sense of my word and other people, the lights will go on. And it won't be competition, man versus God, it will be God's man and God will get the glory. So that the horizontal effort to teach one another isn't a way of dishonoring or robbing God. It's a way of acknowledging God's way of ministering to His church. The original example, I think, for all church life comes in Nehemiah 8.8. 8. And they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. See, a lot of people today don't like that. It's not democratic enough. I can read it for myself and I don't need anybody to help me give the sense. Well, you, maybe so. That may be true. Maybe you should be teaching then. 
But it's clear from this verse that there are masses of people in Israel, and I presume in the church since Jesus gave teachers, who need help to understand God's Word. Human teachers are commissioned to take God's revelation and give the sense so that others can understand. And don't we all know that it's a plain fact that in a group like this of 150 people or so, there are widely divergent abilities in reading. Forget the Bible a moment and just think about reading. You know that when you read the page and another person reads the page, you might get tremendous insights, one after the other, and see relationships and see implications and applications. And this other person reads the same page, it comes to the end, so what? I didn't see anything. There's simply a difference in God-given abilities to read and see meaning. And God's economy is that this person who saw so much should tell this person what he saw and help him see it. And then they both got it under God. I think that's the way the Proverbs are thinking, and that's the way the New Testament is thinking. So, the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel to us when we can listen to them or read what they spoke. And so, my first admonition to you is seek people, books, that have lips of knowledge so that you can listen and learn from them. Now, the second way that the lips of knowledge are valuable is that when you have knowledge for yourself, it's tremendously valuable, not to mention when you can speak it. So we'll take these one at a time. I may have given the impression, and I want to correct it, in what I just said, that I think uh, the only people who can be said to have the lips of knowledge are people who are especially gifted and insightful teachers rather than the hoi polloi, the masses in the church. And I don't think that's what the proverb means. I think that the meaning of the proverb, in fact, you can see this throughout the proverb, is that every one of us should seek wisdom, and every one of us, if we seek, will have the lips of knowledge in varying degrees. So none of you is excluded from this particular point. Knowledge is valuable, first of all, because life and death are at stake in whether we have it, aren't they? Hosea 4.6, my people, what, for lack of knowledge? Perish. My people perish for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I have rejected you from being a priest to me. That's pretty serious business, I'd say. If we don't have knowledge, we could be destroyed as a church or as an individual. People perish for lack of knowledge. They stumble along in the darkness of daily life and wake up to find themselves rejected by God because they did not own up to the truth that was before them and have knowledge. Here's the way Jesus put it. Woe to you lawyers... For you have taken away the key of knowledge and do not enter yourselves and you have hindered those who were entering, namely the kingdom. People can be kept out of the kingdom by lack of knowledge and by preacher types who don't give them the key of knowledge. So it follows, doesn't it, that 
If the kingdom of God, as we said last week, is like a treasure hidden in a field, so valuable that we should sell everything we have to get it, then knowledge, which is the key to the kingdom, is just as valuable as all those things. It's just the same. If you can't get into the house where the treasure is, it's of no value. But if you've got the key, the key is as valuable as the treasure, and you may as well sell everything you have for the key. And the key is knowledge. But not only that, knowledge is valuable to have because not life and death, but just life. The fullness of life with Christ is at stake. How we live, not just whether we live, but how we live, hangs on the measure and the quality of our knowledge, especially knowledge about God. Here's the way Paul prays for the Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 9. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruits of righteousness. In other words, in order to approve what is excellent and therefore bear fruits of righteousness, you need more than the zeal of a loving heart, don't you? I pray that your love might abound in all knowledge and discernment. You have to have knowledge. So Paul says of his poor kinsmen, according to the flesh, they have a zeal for God, but it is not according to knowledge. And he said that in the context of their damnation. You can't just have zeal for God. You have to know God in order to please him. You have to know the way his mind works and what he values and what he hates and why. Here's the way Paul prays in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding to lead a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him and bearing fruit in every good work. In order to please the Lord, you have to know His will. Know His will. So knowledge is valuable because you can't do God's will without it, can you? Of course, that assumes that doing God's will is a value to you. Um, and it may not be. I mean, not everybody gets all that excited about doing the will of God, and therefore they don't get excited about knowing what it takes to do the will of God. But let me try to show what I think you should and, and will get excited about doing the will of God. Isn't it the mark of all Christians that they at least want to be Christ-like? Now, none of us is there yet, but we want to be. I think a person who does not want to be Christ-like needs to re-examine his first principles. So I'm just taking it for granted that everybody in this room tonight wants to be Christ-like. But one of the things Christ said about his own life was this. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Now, in the context, that means the disciples were concerned that he didn't get enough nourishment. They found him there and he hadn't eaten for a long time. And they asked him about whether he'd eaten. And he said, I have food you don't know anything about. My food is to do the will of God. Now, most of us think... We need nourishment in order to do God's will. I've got to have spiritual nourishment so I can get out there and 
win the battle. And here Jesus says, doing the will of God is nourishment. It is my food. And I think there's something like that. Haven't you? You've tasted. You've come to the end of a day, haven't you? A day in which you were tempted and you won. You overcame. And you did not sin. And you come to the end of the day and the sense of cleanness and purity is exhilarating. And the knowledge that the Holy Spirit was mightily at work to overcome that temptation is like food, isn't it? It's like a a strong, pure, clean drink to refresh you at the end of the day. So I think the knowledge that helps us have those experiences of doing the will of God will be just as exhilarating to find as those experiences themselves. Now, I think I could be misunderstood here if I don't stick in a clarification at this point. Someone would misunderstand me if he thought that I only conceive of knowledge helping us do the will of God like this. Namely, whenever I stand before a fork in the road, God's way and sin i got to have knowledge which is God's way. And then if I know which is God's way, I can walk on it. That's true, but that's a very superficial understanding of the Christian life, isn't it? Most of our behavior is is not of that category, is it? When you go through the day, you do not think of your life generally as being a series of forks in the road. Most of our activity during the day is spontaneous. It flows quickly unpremeditated, out of the mouth, or in action. Therefore, you don't have time to say, well now, here are the criteria for God's will, and here are the criteria for sin, and these are the situations, and so on, so on, so on, and so I'm not going to go out God's way. Sometimes we make decisions that way, especially big ones. Most of our lives, where we ought to be demonstrating the power of Christ, is very different because it's spontaneous. Sometimes we respond sinfully with bitterness and grumbling and impatience and resentment and spite and arrogance, none of which are decisions. We don't ponder whether to be bitter, ponder whether to grumble, ponder whether to be impatient. We just are, because that's the way we are inside that day. Or sometimes we respond righteously. Sweetness, thankfulness, patience, encouragement, forgiveness, sound counsel, Not because we've premeditated, shall I be sweet or not? You just are, because it's inside of you, finding its way out. Now, how does knowledge relate to that? That's the question, because that's where most of us live most of the time. Spontaneity and immediacy. I found a clue for answering that question in Colossians 3, 9, and 10, which go like this. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old nature with its practices and have put on the new nature, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, in order to bring forth from the mind and heart spontaneously attitudes and actions which accord with God's will, a renewal has to be happening, doesn't it? A renewal that's very deep, from which all of these spontaneous things are flowing. There has to be a change down deep in what we love 
and what we value and what we cherish and what we long for. Paul says this happens in or by knowledge. We are being renewed. That's like you probably are thinking of Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Same word here. We are being renewed in knowledge or by knowledge. When the wonder and the beauty of Christ and the gospel cease to be a churchly platitude and instead explode in our awareness with the glory of God, we get changed deep down. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed from one degree of glory to the other. The knowledge of the glory of God changes us deep down. And those changes result in spontaneous goodness instead of spontaneous badness. You cannot be righteous all day long if you grit your teeth at the beginning of the day and say, I'm going to be good today no matter what, because you will simply wake up about five minutes into badness realizing you've been bad. Behavior is spontaneous. Responses on the telephone. Responses when husband and wife come home. Responses to kids. They're all spontaneous. Almost all. And that means if we're going to be holy people, a transformation has to happen at the origin of the spontaneity. Not at the level of checking and then analyzing and then doing. Those are important, but that's not where we live most of the time. Therefore, on the second point, I conclude that the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel because when you have the knowledge of God, you have the keys to the kingdom. Life and death are at stake and life comes with knowledge. And you have the key to transformation and holiness and Christ-likeness. And now third and finally, the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel because while... Having knowledge opens the door to eternal life and the joy of holiness. Speaking knowledge doubles the joy by taking somebody with you through those doors. It's a nourishing joy to do God's will. But it's a compounded joy to be the means through your words of helping somebody else do that will too. Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So if you're convinced that it's a blessed and valuable thing to have knowledge and all its benefits, then, according to Jesus, you ought to be convinced that it's much more blessed to give knowledge through your lips, the lips of knowledge. 